the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, again, we are gathered here this evening in this place that we have often gathered before. Once again to hear and to meditate upon thy word and once again dependent upon thee for all that is needful and necessary for we cannot of our own selves take anything but only receive and we cannot even receive into our hearts except thou us so awaken us and create in us a desire and a need so we are so totally dependent upon thy grace and thy infinite mercy and love and compassion which we know does not change but thou art forever the same and so we can trust in thy word and in thy promise and as we gather here again this evening hour, we look to Thee for revelation, for wisdom, for guidance and direction, which all is set forth in Thy Word, that way that leads our hearts unto everlasting life. Through the knowledge of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and His redemptive grace, for therein lies our hope and our salvation. All that we need so that we might inherit eternal life, it is provided for us through thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for thou hast so made it possible. And so we, we are encouraged by thy word and by thy promises even to gather here this evening knowing that where two or three are come together in thy name. There thou hast promised to be in their midst, and so even this evening hour we lay hold upon that promise. We remember also those who are unable to gather with us for reasons of health and the frailty of this human body for sickness and other obstacles that come in the way often and hinder us from being able to gather on thy word, though there is a heartfelt desire to do so. So we remember the shut-ins and those who have asked for our prayers, who are in need of thy help and thy comforting grace, and all who have asked for our prayers far and wide that we encounter upon our pilgrim journey and often ask to be remembered. We carry them before thee, knowing that thou knowest each and every name and every heart that is associated with it. So hear us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Next song, number 286. Grace and peace be multiplied unto us from God, our Heavenly Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we are again able to gather this night of grace. This afternoon, I spoke with Jöran Esperi in Kuttain in Sweden concerning the Easter 
services and he consented to come when I made known that we had intention of calling another older brother to travel with. And God willing, he said that he would endeavor to come in our midst next Easter time. And after I called him, I talked to Pavel Talonen, who lives just a little bit south of Pietasari, uh, close to the coast of Finland, a place called Vähäkyrö. And <clears throat> he also consented to come Easter time. So the first two, I believe that were on our list, have been called and they, they both consented to come, God willing, and so we, and they asked for our prayers in their behalf, and also both of them asked to convey greetings to the congregation here, so be greeted from them. Esperi's name in English would be Esberg. For those of you <clears throat> who have difficulty saying it, it's really not a Finnish name, it's a Swedish name, Esberg. But in Swedish it's pronounced Esber. And the Finns just say Esperi. Um, <clears throat> this evening then, as we gather around God's holy and eternal word, let us once again with prayerful hearts turn to a portion of scripture. And we will read from Paul's epistle unto the Ephesians from chapter 4. Beginning at the first verse, reading the <clears throat> first 13 verses, and they are then in Jesus' name. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. Paul begins this chapter by saying, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, or of the calling wherein ye are called. And he was literally a prisoner of the Lord. He says a prisoner of the Lord, although it wasn't the Lord who imprisoned him, but it was the people who disliked him and who considered him to be a preacher of wild spirits and false and erroneous doctrine, contrary to that which the Jews believed and taught. And therefore Paul was put into prison and he was imprisoned on two occasions. And it was just after his second imprisonment that he also then gave his life and he knew that it was so to be. And it is then that he wrote these words that we have here recorded. Four of these epistles are called the prison epistles because they were written while Paul was in prison. Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Paul did not waste time lamenting and bemoaning his his state and his uh, freedom denied from him, but he used that time to write the epistles, and we have part of the New Testament, most of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. And we see then the heart and the nature of, of Paul. He who was zealous at one time in persecuting the church, who was a man of such a nature that what he seemed to set his mind to, then he dedicated his time and, and all his efforts to that end, to fulfill that whatsoever it was. In the time of unbelief, when he determined in his own mind that those so-called Christians were false and erroneous and they should be all gathered together and imprisoned, then he sought for authorities from the, from the leaders so that he could go and do so. And that's what he was doing with letters of authority in his pocket to go and, and take hold of all those who, who, who confess the name of Christ and bring them imprisoned. 
bring them on to prison. But we know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself intervened and, and confronted Paul on the road to Damascus and began to interrogate Paul in the depth of his heart, Saul, Saul, whose name was Saul at that time. Why persecutest thou me? And he answering said, Who art thou, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul was struck blind and because of a bright light that that overcame him and he was blind and had to be led from that place unto the house of of one Ananias who was a messenger of God Ananias was not one of the 12 disciples but he was a disciple of Christ a man of God who had the good message that he was to hear. And there in the house of Ananias, Paul heard those words that brought deliverance unto him and forgiveness for his sin and also gave him eyesight and he was able to see again. And his heart was changed, and he became just as zealous for Christ as he was against Christ, even more so. For now he was willing to go even unto death for the sake of the gospel. And we know that in the ultimate end, that's the way his life was. He gave his life for the sake of Christ. For he made known that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So now he writes unto these Ephesians, that church in Ephesus where John, one of the apostles of Christ, one of the original twelve disciples, had also labored for some time, and which is also in the book of Revelation, where a letter is written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And in the content of that letter, we see that already living Christianity had gone to that state that they had, they had works that were in need of repentance. But here Paul writes, and these words are written for us so that we might search and examine them and that we might find also for our own hearts. These are more matters of, of doctrine and it is good for us to from time to time consider the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might we might be clear in our understanding in those important matters. Without a saving doctrine, you cannot have a saving faith. It is that important. 
But we live in a time where it seems like the matters of doctrine are becoming obscure and even those who have been brought up in this precious Christianity and the living faith and have been taught that from Sunday school years through confirmation, then it seems that they go awry. They go into darkness and have no knowledge seemingly anymore of what living Christianity is and what is the kingdom of God and where is the kingdom of God. How does God justify sinners? How do you become a child of God? And what is required of us unto salvation? And so they embrace other doctrines and other faiths and anything that seems to be of a vibrant nature and, and where people are zealous and lively and, and serious in their, in their belief, whatever it is. No one was more serious in his belief than Paul was when he was out persecuting the very church of Christ. He was serious. It was not just a passing thing for him, but his, his very heart and soul was in the matter. And that's why it was so necessary that that God would confront him directly or Christ would directly confront him on the way. <clears throat> it is like Lestadius says, big fish need to have special hooks to catch them. And Paul was one of them. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith ye are called. Here's an exhortation unto us that we would walk worthy of that calling wherein we have been called. Which means that when we become Christians, it's not so that you can make of it whatever you want and however you want to choose what kind of way of life or lifestyle you want to choose, spiritual lifestyle, so to speak, that it's your pleasure, whatever you want to do. It's not that way. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are death. And there is a way that is that leads unto eternal life. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we have, by God's grace, been able to enter into his kingdom and become a child of God, then there is also a life that follows. There is a way, a road that we travel on. And every child of God travels the same road. There is not, there are not many different roads to heaven. There are not many different ways that we can be saved. There are countless thousands of religions and doctrines and teachings in the world. And many of them 
teach Christ. Many of them believe in Christ. But there is only one way that leads unto everlasting life. And it's God's way. It's Christ's way. And he does not advocate many different doctrines or teachings. Or does not accept many different kinds. As long as they are zealous. But the mind and the reasoning of man says that as long as you are sincere in what you believe, that's all that matters. Again, Paul was sincere in what he believed when he was persecuting the church of Christ. So that's as far as sincerity goes. The devil is also sincere in his determination to destroy living Christianity from upon the face of the earth. And he is going about it with a dedicated effort with vengeance and with hatred in his heart against living Christianity and against God. But we are to walk worthy of that vocation wherewith we are called. It's a precious living Christianity and it's to be also held in high regard in, in, in a precious and dear condition within our hearts. It's not something that we can just drag along with us and, and make part of our life here on this earth, but it is a life itself. It is a, a way, and it is unlike any other way of life that is in this world. And therefore, when Paul exhorts us to walk worthy of that calling wherein we are called, then we are reminded here that it is something that we are to seriously consider. It is something that we ought to, to uh, apply our hearts to wholeheartedly. It's not an easy road downhill, but it is, it is a striving daily. And he refers to it as a vocation or a calling wherewith we are called. We have been called into it, the calling of God. As he says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Many places in Scripture refers to this calling, we are called of God. We confess in the third article of the creed that we cannot. And the confession is personal. I believe that I cannot of my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel. Enlighten me with his gifts and sanctified and kept me in the true faith. And so it goes on. It is the calling 
of the Holy Ghost. That's how God calls into his kingdom. No one can come into the kingdom of God or into living Christianity from the midst of darkness of this world by his own effort. But he is called and he is awakened and he is led through the grace of God. As Paul also writing in his epistles makes known this, that we are called and we are predestinated. And whom God has predestinated, those he also has called. This is the, this is the calling of God. He says here also in the, in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is the, it begins by these words, Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. And he speaks in this whole chapter concerning spiritual gifts and the, and the calling of God and the oneness of the working of God's Spirit. But he says the, there are diversities of operations or workings, but it is the same God which worketh in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given the Spirit of, by the Spirit, the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another, working of miracles and prophecy and the gifts discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. And we read, read in this chapter also in Ephesians concerning the various gifts. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. There is a oneness, there is a unity in Christ, and that's what he exhorts here also. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we are exhorted, even though we are God's children, and we have entered into this kingdom by his grace, we are exhorted to strive, to endeavor, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is an opposing force, and that is the, the work of Satan that seems to constantly want to destroy and disrupt and and break down the unity and the oneness and the bond of peace that is among God's children. The devil doesn't want 
there to be a unity among the children of God. But he wants to destroy it. He wants to break it down. He wants that it should not be that we should be just as unfortunate as he is. <clears throat> so the apostle exhorts that we are to strive unto that end with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. And how many times is this in different words, but the same matter is brought before us in all of his epistles, pointing us unto Christ, even as Christ has loved us, so we also are to love one another and forbear one another and to be long-suffering and forgiving one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In many of his epistles, he exhorts us to do that. In Philippians, in chapter 1, it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So that is his exhortation even unto the Philippians. Much the same as he, he writes here unto the Ephesians. To keep the unity, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God has only one Spirit called His Holy Spirit. And it is through this one Spirit that he, he does His work of calling, of gathering, of enlightening, of forgiving. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit of God that we have even the forgiveness of sins. Even though we declare, with our mouth we declare unto the penitent sinner to believe your sins forgiven. In Jesus' name and blood, it is through the power and authority of the Spirit of God. And it is witnessed in the heart of the believer who receives it and who believes it by peace and deliverance from his burden of sin and guilt and that person being able to believe unto peace and unto liberty and freedom of heart and conscience. If it were only man's words, it would accomplish nothing. But when it is word of authority and power witnessed by the Holy Spirit of God, then Jesus says, Whatsoever two of you shall agree upon earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done to them of my Father which is in heaven. So it is the one Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. And this one body 
is likened unto the, the church of Christ. It is like one body also, Christ being the head. And all the members, though they are of different kinds and different offices, they all labor and work together. The members of the body do not work against each other, but they work in harmony with each other. And they all serve for the good of the body. All the members of that body, and so is also the body of Christ. It is just one body, and there is one head, and that is Christ. Because it is one body, there is one spirit. Spirit being capitalized here, meaning that it is the Holy Spirit of God. There is also a spirit that is in a man, Scripture says. But we are now concerned with this spirit that is the spirit of God. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. There is only one kingdom of God. There is only one kingdom of God in this community. There is only one kingdom of God in this state and in this country. There is only one kingdom of God in this world. God does not have other kingdoms. He has just one kingdom. And it is called the kingdom of God. And it is led and governed by one spirit, the spirit of God, by his word. When we are God's children, we are in that kingdom. And there is a unity, there is a bond there is a spirit of oneness that sometimes is hard to describe, but we know and we feel it and we experience it as we journey about. And wherever we go and we meet children of God, and you have experienced that as well as I many, many times, that it is amazing how it is so that we can find Strangers, total strangers who live in different part of the country or even different part of the world. And we can converse with them about their experiences and we find that they answer to our own. And we have the like experiences. And so we can even speak of, of the, the way and the journey and the very experiences of our own hearts, the struggles and the warfare. Sometimes even there is a language barrier and we can't speak the same language and we need an interpreter and we find that it is still the same. Language does not create the barrier in that sense. But there is still a one body, one spirit, one kingdom because it is the same God the Father of all. As he says here, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Even as Christ is one, in the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in the 17th chapter of John, that whole chapter is known as Christ's high priestly prayer unto God. 
in behalf of his children. And in that prayer, he says, he prays unto the Father. Neither pray I for these alone, meaning these twelve disciples that he had at that time, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. We see how many times Jesus mentions this oneness that we have with Christ because the Father and the Son are one. And when we are in Christ, then we are one with Him. That is the difference between living Christianity, living faith, and dead faith. Dead faith is that everything else, all other faiths and religions in the world where there is not a oneness, they can't agree in anything. They are totally different one from the other. Some of them are in agreement and they, they merge and come together, but they must they must also relinquish some of their beliefs and change their beliefs and doctrines to accommodate one another. But we don't have to do that in living Christianity. You don't have to change at all what you believe or how you have experienced. When you meet another child of God, it will answer to your own heart because it is the same kingdom. It's all the work of God. It is all His calling. And we can only wonder in amazement how, how this is. How is it possible? But it is like Paul says here, there is one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith. There's not many different faiths or many different lords. There's one Lord, one faith. It is the faith of the Son of God. Paul himself says, that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. One faith, and that is the, the scriptural faith, that faith that Jesus says, he that believeth on me, as the scripture says, from within him shall flow forth rivers of living water. And this he spake concerning the Holy Ghost, that they should receive who believe in his name. One faith, one baptism. It is sad to hear that even in our day, those who have been baptized in the Christian faith as infants, again 
And some have gone to the extent that they have baptized themselves again. And there are churches that require baptism for membership, regardless of how many times you've been baptized before. To be a member of that church, you must be re-baptized. And there are, <clears throat> there are those who don't believe in infant baptism, and they therefore teach that only adults can be baptized who are of the age and understanding that they can receive. But it's not a baptism of the mind or reasoning or understanding. It's the baptism of Christ. It's not a baptism of the church. It's what Jesus has commanded. Go ye into all the world and baptize them, teaching them to believe, teaching them and baptizing them. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. It seems that in this matter of baptism, it, it's like a pendulum. That it, There's been a time when baptism has been, has been so uh, diminished in its essence and importance that as if it has no importance at all. And they have taken those words of Luther where he says that, that it is not the lack of baptism that condemns, but the despising of it. And a child that is born without or dies without baptism is saved, just the same, because of the faith of the Son of God. And so they have believed that to mean that it's not necessary, that it's just a ritual of the church. And so it goes to that extreme that it is disregarded and, and neglected and some don't even find it necessary to baptize. Then it goes to the other extreme and becomes the all-important matter and unless you are baptized you cannot be a child of God. And so it goes from one extreme to the other. Jesus says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. The importance then is on faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God. And we baptize because Jesus says we are to baptize. And already as infants... Because Jesus says, of such is the kingdom of God. But there is one baptism. It's not necessary to have many or more than one baptism. One water baptism we are speaking of. Even in our Christianity, when those come from other churches and who repent of their sins, and they have been baptized, as many of them have, when they are infants and they present a baptismal certificate that they have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. We don't re-baptize them or require that they should be baptized again and that baptism is null and void because it has not been done in the Christian church. Though we don't advocate and Encourage that it doesn't matter who baptizes, but just the same, we don't discourage and say that it's not 
it's not of any worth or any importance, then you must be baptized again. We have many through the years that have come into this Christianity and have been confirmed and have, have been baptized in other churches. But the important thing is that they believe. Without that faith, that baptism has no meaning, has no saving value. It is not the baptism itself that saves, but the Word of God that is in and with the water and faith which trusts that Word of God in the water as, as we teach. So is one baptism, one God and Father of all. There are not many gods, but there is one God and one Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. This is how the kingdom of God is. These are important matters and that they sh should remain clear and important. When, when these doctrinal matters become unclear and vague in our minds, then Christianity also goes into darkness. It will not remain living faith very long. Living faith, living Christianity is born first with a spirit. It is a spirit that gives it life, just like a human being is formed. First, there is a very small seed that, that, is, that is kindled, and, and there the life begins to form. But there is just as much the spirit of life in that little embryo that is forming as there is in an adult human being. There's just as much life because it is a spirit that gives it life. And as it grows and develops, it gradually begins to take on a form, an outward form. And, that's, and when it comes to the time that God has appointed for it to be born, then it is born and continues to grow and develop. And there is a form that is definite there. And in what we call the prime of life, when we are at our fullest strength and our abilities in all, in all ways, then there is, there is this life in its fullness. And then it begins to diminish from that point on. But there is still just as much life there, just as much spirit there, until a person breathes his last. Even though the body uh, has lost its strength and its power and has all its outward appearance but is no longer the same strength, but just as much spirit and just as much life. And when then life is gone, then it is gone. And that is, the, that is the way that it is also in living Christianity. Living Christianity is born with a spirit. I remember Yanni Martini bringing that forth many years ago, and that has remained with me since. I thought it was a clear picture of, of what living faith is. It's born with a spirit. That's how it was in the beginning days of this visitation. Also, we read of it in the early histories, 
that there was a spirit that burned in the hearts of God's children. And it caused them to go in the middle of the night to seek one another and, and to gather around the word of God and to speak about these matters. It was a spirit that gave it life and gradually took on a form that they gathered together and they had church service. And they would have a prayer and they would sing hymns and then someone who had the gift to preach would, would speak a few words and encourage one another. And this is how it took on a form. And then as time goes on, as has happened in many areas, that form continues on, but the spirit has left. And there is just an outward form and no spirit that gives it life anymore. And then it becomes dead faith. That's what's dead faith. It has no life giving spirit, but it has an outward form. And then the form is the all-important thing. The form then becomes the, the Christianity, the outward form. And the formalities then are very important and necessary. That the worship is a certain form and it follows a certain pattern. But we read in the book of Hebrews that our Lord was of another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. It was not an altar worship. Living Christianity is not an altar worship in that we have an altar that we gather before and we worship at that altar. And that is a sacred place like it was in the Old Testament. This altar that we have here is made of wood. And that's all it is. When this church is empty of people, that wood is no different. That altar and this place is no different than any other place in that sense. There is not a life, no life there. It doesn't mean that we should desecrate the church and say it's not uh, a holy place and go to that extreme. But it is, the, it is the people that give it life. And that's what church means. It is not an outward building, but it means the assembly of people that is there. That is the original meaning of church. The holy Christian church is not an outward building. But it is a congregation of believers that confesses faith in Christ. And where this congregation is, there is a Christian church. And where this Christian church is, there is Christ. And there is the Spirit of God. There is the Word of God. There is the Kingdom of God. And where there is not this Christian church. There is not the Spirit of God. There is not the Word of God. There is not the Spirit of Christ. There is not Christ. And God is not there either. But only man and all outward things are there. So it is one God, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That close that he abides in you all by faith. Do you believe this night of grace that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit abide in you by faith? I'm sure you don't feel that. You don't feel to be that holy and that highly exalted. You still feel frail and weak. But because of faith, because of the living faith that God has given you as a gift. 
then through that gift of faith also, his spirit abides in you. And if his spirit abides in you, then Christ is there and God the Father is there. The Trinity, the Holy the Holy Trinity abides by faith in the heart of a believer. Ranta, everyone is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And so these gifts then vary. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The captivity was all the souls that were bound because of sin in the shackles of sin and destined to eternal hell. And Jesus took all this captivity and led it captive. He took it all under his power and authority. And, and he set the captives free. If the Son hath made you free, you are free indeed. And he gave gifts unto men. This is all what Jesus has done. Don't we have a wonderful Savior and Redeemer? Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? So Paul makes mention here how it was necessary first that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, into the very depth of hell itself. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So he descended into the depth of hell, and he arose on the third day again, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the power of the devil. And as we confess in the article of the creed, that he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This particular verse, when it says, He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. This verse has given way to even that kind of belief and understanding that it, this means when Jesus rose just so far above the earth and then he like dissipated into all living substance. That's why we have tree worshippers and plant worshippers and those who worship all manner of life and say it is all just as much life as we are. And so they are worshippers of nature. And... Those who literally believe that that's how Christ now dwells upon the earth. That he's in all these living things. That's not what Paul is here saying. That he might fill all things. Fulfill all things. Fulfill all the prophecies that he has, that have been made concerning him. That he gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. These are the five major gifts that Jesus has given into his church and into the labor of the ministry. All these various gifts are used for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's what it's all for. And when all these gifts are properly used, and when they are led of the Spirit of God, then that is the end to which they labor. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. We have many gifts in our congregation. And we are thankful to God that it is so. All these gifts are necessary. 
and all work to that same end. There are congregations that have only one minister, only one preacher. He doesn't have all the gifts. He has just one gift, whatever it is given unto him. And they seemingly are satisfied to hear just one gift. But we are fortunate to have perhaps all of these gifts. And we have from time to time opportunity to hear many different gifts. And we, we marvel to see how all these are laboring toward the same end. But as Paul warns also in another place that there are those who begin to follow after gifts because they like one type of preaching better than another and they begin to be followers of men and followers of gifts. And consequently consider the others not as important. But all are for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity, that unity again of the faith and the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a, unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here again we are reminded of that one body of Christ and how it comes about through the various gifts that are used to that end to labor till we all come as one body of believers into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And that is our object and our hope and our focus and the center of our faith is Christ, the Son of God. Without Christ, it is nothing. The church is just an outward building and the and the people, if they have not Christ, they are just a body of people that gather together. But when Christ abides in us, and that is a, our center and our hope, then, then it is the Son of God. And we are brought unto a perfect man, a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is all the work of God. May it continue in our midst. May God give growth and may he give blessing and may he continue to, to work through his kingdom and through these various gifts, not only here, but in this precious Christianity, so that his word may go forth to the edifying and to the sanctifying, to the building up of the body of Christ, to the furtherance of his kingdom, and ultimately unto the glory and to the praise of his name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Saturday there's a wedding of Kimberly Crook and Aaron Olson here at the church at 6. And Sunday 
Sunday school at 9.30, and I'll remind everybody again that we're asked to be on time so that we can start on a timely basis. Communion service following at 10.30, and then an evening service at 7. In closing, this evening we'll sing song 225 from the small book, and during the singing of this song, we'll carry a free will offering for the benefit of the church. It does not change next Sunday. It's more toward the end of the month. 